Good morning. My name is Katie, and it's great to be worshiping with you this morning. As we open God's word, I invite you to take a moment to pause, to recenter yourself before the Lord, and I'll close us in a few moments in prayer. Father, so often we are overwhelmed and distracted, busy, tired. God, we pray that this morning you would help us to focus our hearts and our minds on you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We have some funny rituals in church, don't we? I grew up going to a very liturgical church, which just means we followed a very detailed structure for our services that was filled with standing and kneeling and praying multiple prayers out loud together and following a set guide for all of our scripture readings, which in some ways made it a lot easier for the preacher since they didn't have to decide what to preach on, but it also in some ways made it harder when the passage for that Sunday was a particularly tricky one. Now, my favorite part of the service was always one that we also do here, was the passing of the peace. And as a kid, I loved it because it was the time during the service where I got to run around and say hi to all of my friends. But it wasn't until high school that I learned of the deeper significance of what it meant to pass the peace. It was intended to be a moment in the service for us to acknowledge our belief that reconciliation with God and with our neighbor go hand in hand. In liturgical churches, it usually happens before communion to give people the opportunity to reconcile with their neighbor before coming to the communion table to receive God's love and forgiveness. It's a rich practice that creates space in the service for us to make peace with one another. Because at some point or another, we all will experience conflict to some degree in almost every one of our relationships. Your boss took all the credit for a project that you did most of the work on. Your brother or sister borrowed something without asking. You can't talk about politics with your parents anymore without an argument erupting. Your spouse forgot to take out the trash yet again. Or your friend bailed on you for the third time in a row and you don't know why. Whatever it is for you, I imagine that we can all think of at least one relationship that isn't doing as well as we would like it to be. And when these kinds of conflicts arise, there are several ways that we could approach them. But often, our responses typically boil down to two main reactions, fight or flight. And when we react with the fight response in conflict, we perceive the other person to be a threat and our emotions rise. In this heightened state, we try to address the threat as quickly as possible. We act out of defensiveness and charge forward without the other person's point of view or thoughts and feelings in mind. We feel hurt, and we lose sight of the person in front of us. So we jump in to absolve ourselves of responsibility and place all the blame on them instead. Or instead of fighting, we flight. We move away from the conflict and try to avoid it at all costs. Maybe because we're afraid of damaging the relationship, of how we'll be perceived by the other person, of our feelings being dismissed as unimportant, or of being rejected by someone we care about. So we leave the room. We shut down in conversation. We say the right words as fast as possible to appease the other person. 
We do everything we can to avoid running into them. We try to pretend like the conflict doesn't exist until it usually grows so big that it ends up doing more damage than it would have to begin with. And while we may not always respond the same way in every conflict, most of us, because of our personalities and our past experiences, tend towards one of these two camps more consistently than the other. But what if there was a better way? A way for us to pass the peace to and from each other. And not just peace in the sense that we often think of it, a peace that resolves conflicts, but instead a peace that more fully resembles God's shalom. A peace that establishes wholeness to what was once broken. A peace that restores relationships and seeks the flourishing of life, purpose, and joy. And I think the passage that we're looking at this morning helps to provide some guidance for us in this pursuit of making shalom. Right now we're in a sermon series called Lessons from the Lesser Known, and today we're taking a look at a woman named Abigail. Now, if you didn't know that there's an Abigail in the Bible, you're in good company. I've mentioned her to several people over the past few weeks, and all of the reactions I've gotten have been some form of, I don't even know who that person is which is probably because 1 Samuel chapter 25 is the only chapter in the whole Bible that details any part of her story. She's an easy blink-and-you'll-miss-it figure. She doesn't even make it onto many of those great women in the Bible lists. Yet, as I've read and learned more about her these past few weeks, she's quickly become one of my favorite people in the Bible. And her short one-chapter appearance has a big impact on many people's lives. So let's jump in. Now, to set the scene, Saul is the current king of Israel, and while he started out his reign with a lot of promise, he begins to blatantly disobey God's commands. So Samuel, the prophet, tells Saul that God is going to raise up a new king to replace him. Meanwhile, a young shepherd boy named David is anointed by Samuel and begins working for Saul. David joins Saul's army and rises through the ranks to become general by winning battle after battle. And the people of Israel love David. But as David's popularity grows, so does Saul's jealousy. So Saul turns the tables and starts trying to kill David. And our story today takes place while David is on the run from Saul. As he's on the move, he and his men set up camp in the wilderness of Maon near Carmel. And while there, they came upon some shepherds who were guarding some 3,000 3, sheep and 1,000 goats, owned by a man named Nabal. So while they're camped out, David and his men take it upon themselves to watch over and protect the shepherds. And we're not told why he does this. It could be because he was once a shepherd himself, and he knows the dangers of being out in the open with wolves and thieves and enemy forces potentially roaming around. Or maybe it just seemed like the right thing to do. Whatever his reasoning, the text makes a point to show that David is making a choice. He could just as easily have left the shepherds to fend for themselves, or even gone in and stolen some of the sheep, but he doesn't. David chooses instead to use his power to protect. And then the sheep-sharing season began. 
Now, sheep shearing season was typically a festive time, and someone with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats was most likely very wealthy. And it was customary at the time to be generous with your wealth, to keep an eye out and provide hospitality for those who are hungry or poor. So when David sent some of his men to Nabal, the owner of the sheep, during the time of the sheep shearing to ask him for some food and provisions, his request was a pretty reasonable one. David's men gave this message to Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. So would you be kind to us, since we have come at a time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. Now, you would think once he found out what David had done for free and out of the goodness of his heart, Nabal would be extremely grateful and would welcome David and his men in for the feast. But as it turns out, Nabal had a reputation as a cruel, greedy, and harsh man. His name even means foolish one. Rather than responding with hospitality, Nabal responds to David's request with contempt, saying, who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Now, David was next in line for the throne, and his battle victories were well known. Nabal even refers to David as son of Jesse. So even though he says he doesn't, it seems like Nabal did know who David was and just took an opportunity to insult him. With that, he throws David's men out to return empty-handed, repaying David's kindness with contempt and hostility. Now, when David's men report back, David exclaims, get your swords as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. And off they went to kill Nabal and his entire household. David's response here is reactionary and extremely rash, but if you think about it, many of us have fallen into similar reactionary patterns, haven't we? Sure, we may not have an army of men at our disposal, but if we're honest, we all strap on our metaphorical swords and attack in some way or another. For those of us who respond to conflict with the fight response, our weapons may be defensiveness, stubbornness, steamrolling, or raising our voices to drown out the other person. And for those of us who respond with flight, our weapons might be running away, withdrawing, withholding communication, a passive-aggressive slight or a sarcastic comment, but we all have our weapons of choice that we use to harm another person. At this point, David is on his way with his army, and it's looking like Nabal and his household will all be destroyed. Until one of Nabal's servants brings word of what just happened to Abigail. He says, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. 
Now, Abigail is Nabal's wife, and Abigail is described as sensible or wise and beautiful, a stark contrast to the cruelty and foolishness of Nabal. And I think it says a lot about Abigail and her character that the servant comes to her confident that she would listen and act. But now, here she is, all of a sudden caught in the middle of two men at war with the lives of her entire household, including her own life, on the line. Now, if you were in Abigail's position, how would you respond? I'm pretty sure I would try to gather as many people and treasured possessions as I could and make a run for it. Or maybe you would try to gather weapons and stand your ground to protect the home. Or maybe, knowing of David's military might, you'd be so afraid that you would freeze up and do nothing. Well, Abigail didn't do any of those. She immediately sprang into action and began gathering some of the very excess foods from the feast that David had initially asked for. And she gathered a lot of food. 200 loaves of bread and cakes, two wineskins full of wine, five whole sheep, a bushel of grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes, and all of it without Nabal knowing about it, which means the food most likely barely made a dent in what they had prepared for their festivities. But knowing that her husband was a cruel man, she knew that not only would he have opposed and slowed her down, he maybe even would have treated her harshly because of it. So she could have easily left him to fend for himself. He was the one, after all, who had repaid David's kindness with hostility. Especially since it's possible that by going out to meet David, she was risking her life to save Nabal. And this for a man who probably made her life a lot more difficult, who wouldn't even recognize that she was saving him, or that he even needed to be saved in the first place. Yet Abigail acts thoughtfully and decisively and make sure she's prepared for what's to come. She knows that the right thing to do is not only to protect her husband and his household from Nabal's own foolishness, but also to obey God's command and show love to her neighbor. Now, as she's riding over, David is telling his men, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen, but he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Now, it's clear here that David's fight response has completely taken over, and he's charging full steam ahead with tunnel vision clouded by his anger and hurt feelings. And when she sees him, Abigail immediately gets down off her donkey and in a show of humility bows at David's feet, calls him Lord, and with her first words, accepts all of the blame that rightfully belongs to Nabal. Now, the Hebrew word used for blame here is aon, which means guilt and punishment of iniquity, or punishment of sin. She's literally saying, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. And she says all of this, even though she wasn't the one who was cruel or inhospitable. How easy it would have been for Abigail to say something like, my husband is a total jerk. Just ignore him. I think you're great, David. But instead, she says, on me be the guilt, and blesses David. Abigail sees the wrong that was done against David, and rather than play a blame game, she actively works to make it right, to make what was broken whole. She then offers the provisions that she's packed as a sacrifice, 
and reminds him that God will be the one to seek justice against those who oppose David. She says, Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. The lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. And she continues by appealing to David's love of God and the future that God has promised him, saying, even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord, your God, secure in his treasure pouch. When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. In the midst of a conflict that technically isn't even hers, Abigail doesn't fight or flight. She doesn't argue to prove that she's right or avoid the situation in the hopes that it will go away. She acts with boldness and courage to approach David and appeals to him in humility with wisdom, grace, and truth. Now, because of her words and actions, David's heart immediately softens, and he affirms that had it not been for Abigail, he would have continued on and killed every single person in their household. But because of her wisdom in acting swiftly and humbly, he accepts her sacrifice of food and tells her, return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. Because of her actions, where there was only conflict and strife, Abigail made peace between the households of David and Nabal and saved all of their lives. Now, a few weeks ago, during our first sermon in the series, Matt mentioned the Enneagram. If you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it's a system of personality typing that describes patterns in how people interpret the world and manage their emotions. There are nine types, and as a refresher, Matt is a four on the Enneagram, or the creative. I am a nine, or what's usually referred to as the peacemaker. What a title to live up to, am I right? More often than not, I tend to feel like I'm just pretending to live up to that title, rather than actually living it out. Mostly because nines are often known for being conflict avoidant. Because they love the idea of peace so much and want everything to be so peaceful that actually making peace seems like it will cause even more conflict and friction, which goes against all of their instincts. So, to keep the peace, they flight and I definitely fall into the flight camp. It's not very peacemakery of us nines. Because if I've learned anything, I've learned that avoiding conflict doesn't mean it will eventually disappear. It usually means the exact opposite. When we avoid conflict, we tend to increase its effects in the long run, perhaps just as much as if we had acted rashly. And when we insist on always being agreeable, on never having an argument, when we run from the discomfort of navigating through disagreements, we're actually eroding peace by not allowing for the possibility of things to be made right. For instance, a couple of years ago, um, a good friend and I, we, uh, I had been hurt by a few things that had happened, just some misses in communication, and um, I withdrew. And uh, recently, maybe two years later, we reconnected, and through that reconnection, we both learned that we had been going through some tough seasons, both of us. 
And while it doesn't explain, it helps explain things, but um, looking back, I realized that if we had taken the time to talk to each other, if I had been honest about the ways that I was feeling, maybe we could have been there for each other in that time of difficulty. Luckily, the story has a happy ending and we've reconnected, but I can't help of, to think of all the friendship that we missed out on in between. If we want to actually make peace like Abigail, we have to be willing to bravely and boldly take action, not just in our own conflicts, but anywhere that we see brokenness in the world, and not action that is thoughtless or harmful, because while Abigail moved swiftly, she also took the time to see David, to see the ways that he had been wronged so that she could prepare the supplies and the words needed to make things right. Words that she offered in humility, taking ownership, and courageously speaking truth into a situation that could have ended in disaster. Just as Christ did when he humbled himself on the cross, Abigail humbled herself before David. Just as Christ did when he took on the blame for our sins, Abigail accepted the blame that rightfully belonged to Nabal. Just as Christ did when he offered himself up as a sacrifice to God, Abigail gave food to care for David and his men as an offering on behalf of Nabal. And just as Christ made peace with everything in heaven and on earth through the shedding of his blood on the cross, Abigail made peace between the households of Nabal and David. I recently read a book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power by Andy Crouch, and in it he defines culture as what human beings make of the world. The stuff we make from the raw material of nature, but also the meaning we make. And he defines power as the ability to participate in that stuff-making, sense-making process. Now, to be human is to echo our creator, to reflect his image as we participate specifically in the sense or meaning-making aspect of culture. And I love that definition. Because while he acknowledges that there are those who do not always have access to power, as we are all too aware, even just that definition, I think, allows each of us to feel like we have a little bit more power than we often think we have. So while we may feel overwhelmed at the idea of making peace in a world that is filled with conflict and brokenness, I think we all have the ability to make peace in our spheres of influence. Now, as you think about the example of Abigail and the example of Christ, where are the places, the relationships, and the communities in your life where you can help make meaning and truth out of chaos. Places where you can help to not just keep the peace or pretend there's peace when there isn't, but where you can make peace. Peace that brings wholeness and restoration to those around you. Not a false peace, but the fullness of the peace of God. Would you pray with me?